Welcome to the Scotland's Choice podcast. The journey to our referendum is underway, so join us as we discuss how, together, we can build a fairer, a more equal and a more prosperous Scotland. Our goal is to ensure that our listeners are informed, that they're encouraged to get involved and will hopefully inspire others to think about the possibilities for Scotland, because... As our country renews, we need to choose our own future before somebody else chooses it for us. I'm your host, Drew Hendry MP, and in this episode, I'm in conversation with Ariane Burgess MSP. Born in Edinburgh, she studied art and design at both Kingston University and Wimbledon School of Art. A Master of Science in Integrative Eco-Social Design and Leadership and a published author, she became a Green MSP at the election in May 2021 and now represents the Highlands and Islands. Ariane, thank you for joining me on Scotland's Choice. Thank you, Drew. It's really brilliant to meet you in this different context <laughs> other than a hustings. Of course. Uh, so it's great to be here. Yes, our paths have crossed in the past and uh, it's good to see you here today. So as I say, thanks for joining us. Ariane, the, the idea of a well-being economy is something that many people might not necessarily be too familiar with. Uh, would you be able to give a very brief outline of what the term means and how it differs from our current economic model? Yeah, so our current economic model is based, as we, we talk about economic growth, so it's based on growth, it's about um, creating more markets, creating more things, create, uh, you know, generating economy by selling more things, growth that, at all then therefore we can create more jobs. Yeah, growth at all And costs. what we are yeah. looking for is an economy that actually, well I love this idea that right now we have an economy that thinks that it is bigger than the ecological system that we actually are totally dependent on. And so what we need to do is shift from this economy that uh, seems to be you know, the overarching direction uh, to actually saying the ec- ecology is primary and the economy sits within that. And from that, we start to move towards well-being. So I can say a little bit more about what I mean by our ecology. We're, we are absolutely dependent on clean water fresh air and fertile soil. If we don't have those, we don't have any form of life, human life, any form of life, form of life on, on earth. So we need to put the ecology first and say, how can we have an economy that supports these essential life support systems? And from that, our well-being will come. So we're, our well-being, you know, I think many of us started to kind of really connect with the idea of well-being during the lockdown was possibly one of the few good things that came when the pandemic arrived on our doorstep but it gave us pause it gave us the opportunity to um, you know often live at home live closer to our loved ones Mm -hmm. have a relationship with nature i I often talked about how i had my nicola sturgeon government prescribed daily walk to go out (laughs) in nature and and you know and really really work on um, work on my well-being and, and and make sure that was important. So well-being is about not just being our jobs and not about creating you know lots of goods and lots of services, but actually what do we really need? What do we need to meet our needs? And then when we think about that, it comes back to making sure that we have a planet that we can thrive on. At first, uh, the idea of a, something like a well-being economy to many people sound a bit utopian, won't it? But uh, research has shown that the results are actually very encouraging. And the criticisms of the GDP model are hardly new, are they? They're at the, so the criticisms of the GDP model are not new. And actually, for a while, I used to uh, teach on a course about sustainable community development. 
And one of the components we, we worked on or kind of introduced to our participants was the whole idea that GDP, GDP gross domestic product is one indicator that we can use and it's not necessarily mm. the best indicator on, on an indicator of how well are we doing as people, as a society, as a culture. So, you know, we would talk about a whole range of other kinds of indicators and you're probably aware of, I think it's Bhutan who has the happiness indi mm. indicator. And I think that that's actually, you know, this whole idea of well-being, I think it really did start in the East, places like Bhutan and Thailand picked that up as a, you know, let's look at the well-being. And, and I think that we brought it to the West and we've kind of like say it's the well-being economy. And there, we're not alone in it. And I'm, I'm aware of, you know, New Zealand, Scotland and Iceland have this partnership around yeah. can we do the well-being economy and what does that look like? Well, I'm going to come to that uh, with you in a moment or two. But this goes, you know, the, the idea that GDP isn't, uh, the be-all be and end-all goes goes right back in uh, in time, and in fact, even you know uh, Bobby Kennedy said in 1968 that GDP measures everything in short, except that which makes life worthwhile. So you know this has got a, a, a long tradition of being uh, challenged, but probably hasn't been effectively. You you mentioned New Zealand just now. In, in 2019, they unveiled what was probably the world's first well-being budget. There national budget was based on increasing well-being as well as economic growth and a large part of the spending was aimed at health and social care how important do you think our physical and mental well-being are to the economy i think they're absolutely essential if you're not if you're not feeling good in yourself both in your physical well-being and your mental well-being you're not exactly feeling great about showing up to work but I mean, but, but I actually think that we need to get to a place where um, it shouldn't be about economy. It should be about let's be well in ourselves. Let's, you know, mm -hmm. both mentally and, and physically. And then there's a job that we do that participates in in generating an um, economy for the for Scotland. So, so I think they're absolutely essential. And I, it's great to see that. Uh, in the shared program, the shared policy program, we have uh, extra investment for mental well-being. And um, so I'm looking forward to seeing that rolled out as soon as possible, because I think we, we desperately need it yeah. on the back of COVID and our recovery. I think, uh, you know, so many people need support um, around the, uh, the mental health piece. Well, New Zealand, when they introduced this, they they did something which I think will resonate with both of us as representatives of uh, people in rural areas in particular. They, they focused monies on individuals that were most in need to help, of help, to help them achieve uh, equality and to become fully integrated members of uh, society, particularly aiming to improve access for rural and indigenous populations, didn't they? It, in, in 2007, if we go back a bit and, and renewed again in 2018, the Scottish Government uh, launched a national performance framework which is aimed to create a more successful country with opportunities for all of Scotland to uh, flourish through increased well-being and sustainable economic growth. As a Scottish Green MSP, how do you think Scotland is doing in our ambitions uh, to move towards a well-being focused model? I think we've made a start and, and it's actually great. You know, I've been living in the States for 20 years before I came back to Scotland uh, and that was about 10 years ago. And I really, one of the things I really felt was like, wow, you know, Scotland is still a country where there's a lot of caring. There's a lot of caring for mm. each other. As and we saw during I, the I, pandemic. Still, yeah. 
Yeah, yeah, well, and that really came mm. to the fore, yeah. didn't it? I mean, I think it, it, it was it was latent a bit, and then it just yeah. uh, really burst forth. Um, and and so, um, I've lost my thread there. <laughs> but I was just talking about the uh, the national performance framework. I mean, I mean, the, the Scottish government introduced eighty one indicators to gauge uh, progress, and it was aimed at empowering communities, reducing poverty through equal sharing of opportunity, wealth and power. You said there'd been a start. I think really, where are we in the journey in terms of where we need to go to? I think we've got quite a ways. And I, I've been, I mean, my main interest actually in my region is really about empowering communities. And we've had that um, Community, Community Empowerment Act back in was it 2014, I think. And I think, you know, that still needs more work. And, you know, it's like this piece around, um, empowering communities, giving people agency to really shape where they live. Yeah. I think that that brings a lot of com uh, comfort, that will bring a lot of confidence back to people. And I, and I think that's an underlying piece, the lack of confidence and feeling like you can shape the world around you in partnership with the people that you live near and yeah. with, um, that, that needs to come into place because that will help with our the, the mental health piece. I, I think that some of the reasons we got the, men, the challenges to mental health is because we don't feel, many of us don't feel we have power and agency about what's happening to us in our lives or for our families. Ariane, uh, as we're speaking just now, COP26 is right around the corner. How can we use uh, COP26 to focus on moving to a well-being economy? You really want me to talk about that? <laughs> yeah, of course. Okay, so I say it like that because I, um, when I lived in New York, I got really involved with another UN um, initiative, which is called the um, Sustainable, the Commission on Sustainable Development, and I, I put quite a lot of time and effort into several years of attending those events, and those were handy for me because they took place in New York, and everybody came to New York, and we, uh, I got involved in what was called the Women's Caucus. So there were all these different. Um, mm civil society groups and we had our focuses. The Women's Caucus spent most of its time just trying to get the word women into all of the papers because women globally were so disempowered. Yeah. Women did the work, but didn't own the land in so many places. So it was just this work to just make sure we got women a fair, um, you know, a fair chance. So, uh, you know, from that, I got quite a lot of experience around the, the slow process of these big global events. I think COP is absolutely essential. I think it's really important that we all show up at it. Uh, if we're not there, then people don't know that we want urgency, mm -hmm. um, we want action fast. Uh, I think that it's been inspiring in a way. I know that in my region, I've come across a, a, a good number of groups that have gotten together and said, let's use COP as something to push and uh, achieve a few things before we you know, before the event actually occurs, I think that we can also use it as that springboard. And I'm really looking forward to hearing Scottish government announcements, certainly around agricultural policy that could, you know, really shape the future for a long time. So I think we need to be ambitious in, in what comes comes out of COP. Um, and it is, it is worrying though for me because it's such a challenge to get mm -hmm. all these, you know, nations across the world that have different tensions right different needs and so there's this tension there's constant negotiation and i think there's a you know a big key bit um right now for this cop is to make sure that there's enough 
um, funding going to um, developing countries to meet their needs. Yeah. And, and that's always, you know, I think people talk about this often, right? It's, it's countries like Scotland, the United States even more, where we're the big polluters, we're the big users of energy, uh, and we're the ones that really need to make the lifestyle changes. And meanwhile, it's countries um, in Africa, South America, that are the ones that really take the brunt of the climate impacts and, and the biodiversity impacts. Okay. Bring it back to um, well-being economy and to domestic uh, issues. Scotland's through trial a four-day working week. It's a it's a bold move, but it sparked a, a, an awful lot of conversation. How do you see this impacting on the move towards a well-being economy? And what do you see are the benefits that would come out of this? I, I think the four-day work week would be tremendous. And we're actually having that conversation in the Scottish Parliament, beginning seeds of it. And um, I mean, I remember, well, now I'm in this role as MSP and I, I'm relentlessly, delightedly busy and I don't think there's such a thing as a four-day work week. I'm not even sure if there's such a thing It's a, it's a seven-day work, work week, week. It, if it's anything like mine. that's part of the yeah. privilege and, yeah. you know, incredible and um, wouldn't want it in any other way. Yeah. However, I do remember a point in my life. So a lot of my life, I've, I've worked freelance yeah. and I remember a time in my life where I had a five-day working week and basically... You're working five days. I would come home. Saturday would be like, you know, get everything sorted out. Sunday, I'd catch my breath and it's back to work. There's no time to really be with family or really pursue, you know, other interests uh, mm -hmm. than our job. And I think that, again, I think I said it earlier, we are so much more than our jobs. We're so much more than our work. And mm -hmm. not everybody is fortunate yeah. to have employment that they absolutely love and i i want to see you know well-being economy four-day work week is a, is moving us in a direction where people can actually find out more about who they are and i think another piece mm -hmm. to that is that so often people go through school they get the right hires and then they're on this conveyor belt into education and then into a job and where's the moment unless they're lucky enough to have had that gap year yeah. where's that moment to really find out what, who really am I and, and what do I really want to do? Mm -hmm. What contribution do I want to make? So I think the four-day work week is, is, is we're definitely heading in that direction. And I, I think actually my father said to me maybe 40 years ago that this was going to be happening. Yeah. Well, take it as a bit was, longer. He was ahead of his time, yeah. <laughs> he, was, he was a bit ahead of his time. Um, so, yeah, so uh, we've got to do it. Uh, I think it's just the piece of like, how do we do it in the way mm. that works? Because I think certainly for our, you know, our part of the world, rural, uh, all these small um, businesses that make up so much of the rural economy, how do they do it? Mm -hmm. How can they afford to pay staff for a four-day work week and, and you know, keep the business running? Well, so yeah. I think this, there, we yeah. definitely need to think well about how we move there. Well, Iceland, Iceland has re recently tried the Forty working week, and it seems to have been a very big success for them there. And in private business, I know examples where people have been uh, doing this for some time. They've seen productivity go up. They've uh, seen the real benefits of this happening. So it's nothing to uh, be particularly wary of. In fact, you know, productivity seems to rise across the board. And I don't think there are any examples of uh, uh, of this failing to work in in almost every case that's been implement, implemented. Uh, yeah, just so I think that that key there is mm. what do we mean by four day work week, mm. and that's yeah. what we need, you know, because I think there's variations on it. And I think the Iceland trial was that it was four days a week, 
but they were longer work days. Mm -hmm. So I think that's where we need to kind of like, what's the Scottish definition of a four-day work week? That yeah. would be a really good well, thing. In Iceland, there was certainly no loss of pay for going to four days. Yes, so I think, exactly. You know, but that, there is that, a, was, that was the yeah. good thing. Yeah. As you've said, there's discussions that go in through that. Uh, looking at uh, countries such as Iceland, since I've mentioned them, who've introduced things like equal pay certification for business, a balanced government cabinet, and equal parental leave, and the successes they've had with, it, with such measures as well as the four-day working week. Uh, why do you think other countries are slow to embrace uh, these kinds of moves? I think it's cultural change. I think that uh, people who are in the positions of power in those countries are the people who don't need those changes. It's mm. not it's not in their interest necessarily, or they don't even know it needs to be changed. <laughs> yeah. You know, they don't they don't they don't think of it because it's not causing them difficulty. We, we're talking about the well-being economy and being able to present us with a, a lot of opportunities. As we've seen that the pandemic has started to shift the way that people think about working and viewing, particularly viewing certain jobs and roles. There are a lot of people in the economy just now who are marginalised. Um, you know, do you think looking at different ways of doing things would be, uh, would improve the, the lives of those people who, who are in those marginalised places? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we need a, an economy that works for everyone, an economy um, and, you know, in, in forms of employment that uh, are accessible to anyone who wants to make that contribution. Uh, so, you know, we have situations where, for example, women may may have, because uh, we're still in that kind of world where often caring work falls to women, um, they um, might want more secure part-time work. And that would, you know, that, that, that would be something we could bring in. Or perhaps we want, um, you know, jobs that um, are more accessible for people with disability. Well, you, you, you're talking um, about... I think that we need to... Yeah, you're talking about disabilities there. In Scotland, only 4.1% of people with learning disabilities and autism are, uh, that, that are known to local authorities are actually in employment. That You know, that that's the kind of area where this could potentially make a difference, yeah? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think that's actually a shocking, shocking to hear that percentage that you've just just put out there and I, but I think that what we need to be doing in order to make the changes is not impose the changes on people but start to have the conversations about what would work for those people so that they can find their way into but, employment meaningful employment yeah. you know the, the, the Scottish government fairer Scotland disability delivery plan for the UNCPRPD has set targets to half the disability employment uh, gap through increasing opportunities for uh, for fair work and for suitable work but but it's going to be it's a long haul isn't it to uh, to to really kind of sort this out for people and make it you know a fairer society and and one of the reasons why we need all the powers here in Scotland to do that well absolutely uh, we yeah i totally share your view with we need all the powers in scotland um, and i think this is a critical moment where we absolutely need need that to happen that brings me on to the uh, the signing of the cooperation agreement between the smp and greens scotland now has a majority of progressive msps in government what aspects of the deal uh, i know you touched on it earlier but let, let's tell me what aspects of the deal excite you in terms uh, of most improving the nation's well-being there's so many aspects of the deal that are that are um, will help to improve our well-being. Active travel, obviously, is number one, and I think that's maybe a, a somewhat dear to your heart from Indeed. things that you did in the past in Highland Council. 
Um, so yeah, so active travel would be brilliant. You know, we've got this commitment to. Uh, I hope it's still at least one national park. I'd love to see more, but uh, also nature networks. That's very exciting yeah. to me. Uh, the fact that we're now talking about regenerative agriculture, we're not just talking about sustainable agriculture, uh, and regenerative is very different from sustainable. Uh, and and um, also for us in our region, uh, the commitment around funding for rural housing, but more than that, the enablers that can help communities actually create their the housing they need. Because in our you know, in our part of the world, communities don't necessarily need 400 houses on yeah. the edge of their village. They need four or five to, you know, house the, the young family that wants to stay there. And that's going to have to be brought forward by communities. And communities don't necessarily know how to do that. So we need the enablers who've got the skills and the history of bringing housing of that kind about. And, and of course, working together on housing is going to be really important, particularly in rural areas where there's a, a, a real reliance on the tourism economy in the Highlands and Islands. It's about 20% of the economy, really big part of it. But of course, accommodation for people working in uh, the tourism industry, you know, particularly young people, is really, really difficult to get. So that's a, it's, it's an important difficult. move forward, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. It's really essential. I mean, I think there's some... There's some work that I'll be doing in the local government housing and planning committee coming up in November that I think will help with that. And I think there'll be some other pieces around. Um, so that's short term let's legislation. And then also um, later on in the session, probably some work around second homes um, definitely needs to be looked into. But we also need to yeah, build some houses in the right places for people. Okay. Uh, Ariane, uh, finally, um, independence presents many opportunities to Scotland, the most significant uh, of which is the all-encompassing fact that we'll be able to make our own decisions and to shape the kind of country uh, we want to be. Uh, when you think of an independent Scotland, what, what is your vision? What do, you, what do you want to see? Well, as we said, I want to see a Scotland that has all its powers in its hands. And I think where that came from me was actually coming back to live in Scotland from the States. And I think it's that, that thing of like going away and you come mm. back and you can see something more clearly. And what I really, I just really, really saw that Westminster, that, you know, the way that things are governed from Westminster is so far away from us, but also kind of far away in its cultural approach. And it's, it's, well, you know more than I do about <laughs> it, but it yeah. just seems like it's, sorry, Drew, a little bit of the dark ages. Uh, I, I know? wouldn't disagree. You and, don't have to apologize to me for that. It, it subscribes <laughs> to what I think. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, and I, and I, and, and, and again, we touched on it earlier. I really feel that the, the, the fabric of community care is very mm. alive in Scotland. And, uh, and, and, and that's what I think that could come alive even more. If we bring power to Edinburgh, then I want to see power move much more locally so that we can actually be shaping in Orkney and Shetland and the Western Isles. We can People can be making the decisions that work for where they live because I've actually traveled around the region um, over the summer and um, you, know, you, you think, oh, islands. No, the Western Isles is not, you know, they're not the same. Mm. Barra is a completely different, has a completely different set of issues even if you talk about housing in Barra, Lewis and Harris, they're all different issues. They all need housing, but the issues to get there are different. 
So that's what I would love to see is that we get the power back to Edinburgh and then we look for putting power into people's hands at a local level and, and really, really putting the power there. You mentioned Westminster there, of course, one of the difficulties in trying to get a well-being economy whilst being saddled with Westminster decisions is they do things like, uh, you know, make a cut to universal credit at the same time that energy prices are rising at the same time that inflation is hitting food costs and so forth. So any of the work that we're doing here to try and get there to mitigate that um, is just being blown away by these uh, pretty callous decisions at Westminster. Absolutely, totally undermined. And, and you know, what you talk about there is like, that's the energy that's reserved to Westminster. Mm -hmm. Let's get that back in our hands at a critical time where we need to be designing our energy systems. You know, this is where we're talking about onshore wind, offshore wind, mm. interconnectors to Orkney, all that kind of thing, or repairing it. We need to be making those decisions. And the same with the, you know, the kind of like um, social security, finance, welfare, all that bit. We need that back so that actually what I would love to see is let's get UBI, let's get universal basic income rolled out right now at a time where I feel people are really on the edge we're in a kind of fragile moment. And if we could give people that uplift, give people that support, no matter what walk of life you come from, you get that universal basic income so you can meet your basic needs. And then we can start building from there. And I think that would be a really great basis for building a well-being economy. Well, on that, uh, on that uh, issue of giving people hope for the future through uh, having the powers of an independent Scotland. Well, thank you very much, Ariane, for joining us on Scotland's Choice and thanks for taking part in the podcast. Thank you, Drew. It was great to have the chat with you. Well, there we have it. GDP should not be the be-all and end-all to measuring a country's success. If a nation's citizens are looked after as individuals and we protect our natural environment, the economy becomes stronger as a result. Thanks to you for listening. Don't forget you can find new and previous episodes of Scotland's Choice at scotlandschoice.scot. If you can share this podcast, it can help others with their decision on Scotland's future. I'm Drew Hendry and I hope you'll join me next time on Scotland's Choice.